0: Info sharing as a way to mitigate medical device hacking. And a conversation with Internet co-founder Vince Cerf. These stories are more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, Amarek Chabro. One of the most worrisome breaches imaginable is a hacker exploiting vulnerabilities in a medical device. It can be life-threatening. One way to defend against such breaches is to alert medical device manufacturers of vulnerabilities when they become known. That doesn't always seem to happen. Joining me to discuss how to handle disclosing these weaknesses is Healthcare Info Security Executive Editor Marianne Kolbasak-McGee. Hey, Marianne. Hi, Eric. Not everyone who's aware of security flaws in medical devices are alerting the manufacturers of those weaknesses, Right.
1: Well, they're supposed to either contact the vendor or government officials, but that was not the case in the instance of Muddy Waters Capital, which published a report that was based on findings about St. Jude Medical cardiac devices. And these vulnerabilities were found by a startup research firm, MedSec Holdings, which Muddy Waters has a financial arrangement with. And instead of notifying the vendor, St. Jude Medical, they just publicly reported this.
0: Do you know what the vulnerabilities were?
1: There was a number of vulnerabilities that the researchers say could pose danger to patients. And Muddy Waters claimed in the report that these products should be recalled by St. Jude Medical. St. Jude Medical refutes the findings.
0: What makes disclosure of medical device vulnerabilities a challenge for some?
1: There is no one official way that this should be done. There's recommendations. The FDA has recommendations on how this should be handled. There's some safety organizations that have their own recommendations, and they're all pretty much directing researchers to contact vendors in the government. Joshua Corman, who is a founder of a grassroots safety organization, I Am the Calvary, explains
2: When we launched the cavalry, we put on our site a a position on disclosure which outlines what we think needs to be the shared responsibility between the bug finder, the bug receiver, and the general public. But the very first line is the one that matters here. It says whoever cares about public safety and human life should take great care to not inadvertently put them at risk. And this is just a very different ballgame. The general protocol for any bug disclosure is you initially try with the vendor to tell them, ideally through their Coordinated Vulnerability Disclosure Program. Failing that, or if there's an impasse, or even in parallel, you may tell the Department of Homeland Security's ICS-CERT, so DHS ICS-CERT handles safety critical bugs. And the Food and Drug Administration is the regulator of record here.
0: There are these regulatory agencies that can be alerted of these bugs. What good is it to notify these government agencies?
1: The government agencies in these circumstances will often issue a guidance for healthcare entities and also other medical device makers to consider taking what steps for them to take to address these vulnerabilities. In one case last year, in fact, FDA recommended that hospitals and healthcare organizations stop using another vendor's device because of some of these vulnerabilities that were found by another research firm.
0: How big of a threat is hacking a medical device to cause patient harm? Have we known of cases or is this uh, something that's still theoretical?
1: part, the FDA says that there has not yet been any real case where a patient has been harmed by a hacker attack on a vulnerability in a medical device. But this is something that is really sort of the nightmare scenario. Hollywood focused on such cases on TV shows and in films. Right now, it's more theoretical than real, but you never know.
0: No, you don't. Do you? Nope. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. Financial institutions using interbank messaging network known as SWIFT continue to be compromised. Earlier this year, cyber thieves stole $81 million from the Central Bank of Bangladesh's account at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York via fraudulent SWIFT messages. The mischief involving fraud tied to SWIFT continues. And to explain the latest developments in the SWIFT saga, I'm joined by Data Breach Today Executive Editor Matt Schwartz. Hi Matt. Hi Eric. What's the private letter I've heard about sent from SWIFT to its customers?
2: The letter is dated August 30th and was reproduced by Worders, and the letter urges all of Swift's 11,000 financial institution customers to make sure that they're paying close attention to their local security, so the security of their IT networks. And SWIFT is sounding that note of alarm because it says that since June, it's had verified reports of multiple banks, it won't say which ones, in multiple geographies, it won't say which ones, who have been hacked by fraudsters attempting to illegally and fraudulently transfer money to themselves via the SWIFT network.
0: Although they're not identifying specific banks or geographies, do we have a sense of what kind of banks may be targeted through SWIFT?
2: As with so much of security, it appears to be the organizations and institutions that have the least well-protected networks. Here is Cybersecurity Advisor Alan Woodward with more on that. It wasn't SWIFT that was hacked per se, but once you get into somebody's system, and if you're the Bank of Bangladesh or something, and you've got some secondhand $10 router, that's still using the default password it's not surprising that people get into your systems and then basically all they're doing is they're using swift not as it was intended to be used but how it can be used and so they were just committing straight fraud people don't seem to realize that as that program says on the tv you are the weakest link it's down to the person that makes the most stupid mistake or the, the cheapest most insecure bit of equipment in your network those are the sorts of things that people have really got to start thinking about seriously. Woodward says that for too long, cost considerations have overweighed security considerations and that organizations have to take a really hard look at the equipment, not only that they purchase, but they decide to keep if they want to resist these kinds of attacks that we're seeing against SWIFT using institutions.
0: What kind of equipment are we talking about?
2: in the wake of the bangladesh bank hack a police report from the bangladesh police noted that the bank wasn't using firewalls and was using a secondhand switch worth maybe ten dollars the implication being that if you're an attacker who wanted to hack into bangladesh bank you wouldn't face too many obstacles
0: can swift do anything about the forsters who use their network
2: That is the subject of much debate. Some security experts think that Swift should be doing more to police the messages that are sent across its networks. Swift has given all of its users a firm November 19th deadline to install updated Swift software that it says includes better user authentication, stronger password management rules, so the kinds of passwords that can be generated for using Swift in the first place, as well as better tools for helping detect hack attacks. That should help. Also, more organizations using two-factor authentication, for example, to get into their Swift software would also help. But going forward, we're gonna see even more security controls on Swift's part. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Next, a conversation
0: with Vince Cerf. Cerf is known as one of the fathers of the Internet. He co-created, in the 1970s, TCPIP. That's the transport protocol that makes Internet communications possible. At the time, Cerf was a manager at the Defense Department that developed ARPANET, the precursor to the Internet. I caught up with Surf this week at a National Institute of Standards and Technology symposium, where he delivered a keynote address. I asked him that when he developed TCPIP more than four decades ago, did he envision the vulnerabilities and threats users of the Internet face today?
3: Well, the honest answer is yes, and the reason that I can say that confidently is that this project was originally intended for military use, and we were fully conscious of the uh, risk factors of attackers going after the network, the radio systems being jammed, and so on. However, some of the mitigations uh, were originally developed in the mid 1970s with NSA, and those mitigations turned out to have been classified using equipment that was not available to the general public. And so for a while, it was was schizophrenic because there was a specific architecture and uh, instantiation of internet that was usable for the military, which was not available to the general public. Moreover, there were a lot of students who were working in this system while I was running the program at ARPA, and they didn't have clearances anyway. And on top of that, this was being deployed primarily in the academic community, and no one expected students to be very well behaved when it came to security. So a lot of the evolution of the network was outside of the boundaries of the military applications. Now, of course, with the cyber-physical systems everywhere and the Internet everywhere, we are much more conscious of the need to make the system more secure than it has been. And there's a lot of work going on in the Internet Engineering Task Force to achieve that objective. So I anticipate over the course of the next decade or so that we will actually see a lot more mechanism in place in order to enhance security and privacy and safety.
0: So you see things being much more secure than they are today?
3: I hope so. of course, if it isn't then at some point, people will decide that it's not an environment that they find, uh, you know, worthy of trust, in which case that they'll look for something else. Maybe something will replace the internet that's more secure than it is today.
0: You mean it kinds up what that could be? I
3: have no clue.
0: Today, SURF is Chief Internet Evangelist for Google. To hear more of my conversation with SURF, go to inforisktoday.com and keyword Vint SURF. Finally, whatever happened to the federal CISO? In February, you may recall, President Obama announced the creation of the position of federal chief information security officer. But since then, no one has been named to the job. That could end soon. At the NIST Cyber Trustworthy Conference this week, federal CIO Tony Scott said, And we're about to announce our uh, chief information security officer for the federal government, finally. Scott explains how he and the new CISO would collaborate on cybersecurity. I
2: think these are
0: two roles that really work closely together. And the probably biggest contribution that I think that that role can make is is the influence it can have across the entire ecosystem, if it's done right. The new federal CISO might not have much time to prove his or her influence on the cyber ecosystem. After all, a President Clinton or President Trump could decide to pick his or her own federal CISO or do away with the job entirely. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.